1: This week on P.A. Books, the author of Declaration, William Hoagland. William Hoagland, author of Declaration. Uh, there's been a lot of books written about the Declaration of Independence. What's new about this one?
0: This is really more about the, uh, the nine weeks leading up to the Declaration and the, uh, the backroom politics that actually got us the Declaration. Um, and that actually has not been told before in one book for general readers.
1: What happened in the nine weeks?
0: Uh, an amazing amount happened in a very short span. I mean, from May, fir- the, you know, the subtitle of the book is May 1st to July 4th, The Tumultuous Weeks, and it was a, it was an amazing period of conflict among Americans about whether we would declare independence or whether we would reconcile with England. So, I mean, you have, uh, action in the street. You have all kinds of, uh, spin and political theater in the Congress. Um, you have the overthrow of the state colony of Pennsylvania, um, in order to bring about independence. Um, so it's just a, it's, it is a tumultuous and sort of uh, amazing little period of time.
1: Well, there's a lot in that answer you gave that yeah. I can ask about, but why did you pick May 1st as a starting date?
0: On May 1st, it's a good starting date because there was actually uh, an election in Pennsylvania for the Pennsylvania Assembly on May 1st. And it was a big benchmark moment in the story of uh, whether we were going to declare independence because there was a, uh, Pennsylvania, you know, to set this up a little bit, Pennsylvania was. Um, against declaring independence, was for reconciliation, I mean the the government of Pennsylvania was was very strong in favor of reconciliation, and Pennsylvania was the most powerful and influential of the colonies, and controlled or had great sway over the middle colony block, um, which was strategically important and culturally important. Um, So Pennsylvania's opposition to declaring independence um, was decisive. On May 1st, there was an election for a new Pennsylvania Assembly and there was a a a ticket of pro-independence assemblymen running so had that election gone for independence uh, Pennsylvania would have changed its position on independence it would have instructed its delegates in the Congress to propose or vote for independence and the whole thing would have swung for independence pretty early in May Um, that didn't happen actually the voters of Pennsylvania elected a reconciliation slate of assemblymen. Um, and so then the real action begins, because at that point it was clear that Pennsylvania wasn't going to change its position, and the pro-independence faction decided they had to take down Pennsylvania.
1: What was, at the time, what was going on in the war? What stage were we at at that point?
0: Uh, the war had been going on uh, for about a year, because in April of 1775 there were shots fired in Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts. Um, there was not, the, the British invasion had not yet come. Um, the British had been bottled up in Boston. George Washington had been sent from by the by the Continental Congress in Philadelphia to um, to run the uh, to run the Continental Army. You know, the Continental Army was a uh, pretty ragtag itself. There were militias in Massachusetts. The British bailed out of Boston in uh, March of 1776, just burned their ship, burned their forts, and broke up their their cannon, and got in their boats and sailed over the horizon. and there were there were there was action. Um, there were actually two British men of war uh, bottling up the Delaware Bay, uh, just just south of you know south of Pennsylvania, south of Philadelphia, to stop trade. But there hadn't yet been the big pitched uh, invasion from Britain. So there was a state of great suspense about what was going to happen next. And actually, right before May first, the news had come uh, to Philadelphia and to the colonies as a whole, that the British were massing in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and that fearsome invasion was about to begin.
1: Hugh, it's a little bit of a side story, but you tell about a, a, a skirmish in the Delaware River with a British ship called the Roebuck?
0: Yeah, that was one of those. That was the man of war uh, that was the head of that little fleet uh, that was that had been, you know, at the mouth of the Delaware Bay, uh, advanced up the river on May 5th. hope I get my dates right out I don't have my book in front of me, um, but I uh, adva- began, advanced up the river, uh, not actually to attack Philadelphia, uh, to get water somewhere and to check out the defenses in the river and so forth, um, and the uh, the the road galleys, actual, you know, oarsmen of Philadelphia, uh, came out to fight the fearsome British man-of-war. Uh, and in a really interesting battle because you wouldn't have expected necessarily the oarsmen to succeed against a great British ship. Mm-hmm. And there were, there were two, actually, men of war and a couple of other. They brought some other boats with them, beat back the British, the British uh, uh, offense. And uh, that did was they, a big moment for did Philadelphia. Did they have cannons?
1: How did they beat them back?
0: Oh, yeah, gun, guns. Um, On the little rowing boats? Yeah, they, were, they weren't little. I mean, they were galleys, you know, oh. so they weren't little like we think of as little small rowboats. But still, they were not uh, navigable in deep water the way the uh, the, the, sailboats, the sailboats were. Uh, and it was, it was a very exciting moment. Uh, brought the war, in a sense, to Philadelphia, um, as close as it had been, certainly, and uh, definitely helped galvanize people in Philadelphia uh, to begin to see the British... In a, in a in a in a pretty in, in an extremely negative light,
1: thinking maybe okay, maybe there's no way back now. How would word have spread from Nova Scotia that the British fleet was coming? How would how would it have oh, gotten there yeah, to Philadelphia
0: before a, the ships got there? That's an interesting question. Um, one thing that I, you you did have rep- you actually can see reports from the high seas. I mean, people had been, fishermen had been out to sea and had seen some some of these transport ships actually bringing large numbers of british troops across the atlantic that was one of the that was one of the ways
1: now uh, getting back to the election in in pennsylvania f- first of all uh, how, what did it mean to have an election at the time what what was the philadelphia general assembly or the assembly whatever they called it and what authority did they have
0: well it was uh, the assembly had a lot of authority and it was in, of course in the middle of a, of a governmental crisis because we were actually at war with england at the time and the question of what the government really was was very much up in the air But Pennsylvania, particularly, had a very strong working representative government, um, a single-house legislature, and it was operating. It was operating uh, just fine. Um, And it it had a lot of power. Because that, You know, know, it's funny to think of now because we think of when we say the Congress, you know, this was the Continental Congress. But when we say the word Congress, we imagine a big room full of lots and lots of people and a federal government. And, of course, there wasn't any such thing at the time. The Continental Congress was a meeting. Uh, a delegated meeting uh... represented a representative body representing the thirteen colonies uh... The got the separate governments of the thirteen colonies but the real governmental power the lawmaking power was in the legislatures of the colonies and pennsylvania's was a particularly well-regarded august uh... body that had been making representative law for a long time
1: was there a governor
0: uh... yeah there was a governor um... but the governor really at this uh... pennsylvania uh... just again reminding people about the differences in some of the colonies. It's, it's funny because we think of all the colonies as sort of under the king. Uh, Pennsylvania was a proprietary colony, not a royal colony. Uh, so there was a governor. Uh, but the governor was not functioning at that time. And actually, executive power, and this is part of what started to happen in the, in the nine weeks, uh, ex- started to come to a head in the nine weeks, executive power had really passed to revolutionary committees um, to actually carry out law. So there was there was the beginnings of a and actually, in the in, in the book, it's it's not just the beginnings, but a, a climactic battle, really, between the elected uh, legislature and the revolutionary committees that had taken on executive power, because the revolutionary committees were more radical than the than the assembly, but they were unelected. Um, actually, it's not true that they were totally unelected. But they were not elected through the same kinds of August processes that had been going on for so many years, in which you know law founded found in law. You mentioned,
1: let's see if I can find this, you mentioned um, revolutionary committees and you you have a line in here about Thomas Paine and his writing and you say Paine was expressing his Philadelphia comrades working class radicalism in a powerful new language. When you went through the the study of the revolution in America and how these people from the beginning of May to the fourth of July turned people toward revolution, did it were there parallels with other revolutions like the, the Bolshevik Revolution or the Iran Revolution? I think there are some really interesting par-
0: parallels and I think they've tended to be overlooked um, because, of course, it, it's largely true that the American Revolution as a whole was what we call a moderate revolution and sort of a middle-class revolution and not an extreme revolution like, say, the French Revolution, which followed shortly thereafter. And, of course, Paine went from the American Revolution to the French Revolution and actually ended up, you know, he came to grief in, in France. He ended up in a French prison uh, because the revolution got so extreme that even he uh, was was uh, was in trouble. Um, so... We often look at the French Revolution and go, well, we didn't go that way. We took it in steps, and we didn't get too democratic, and we didn't get too egalitarian. Um, and that's largely true. Um, but actually what this story reveals is that there was also a strong element of that kind of radical egalitarianism, especially in Pennsylvania, especially powerfully in Pennsylvania, um, through these revolutionary committees. And Paine uh, is probably the best known of the men who formed those, who formed that radical cadre. Uh, but many of them have, have really their names have just not been remembered. Sam Adams. Samuel Adams uh, came, came from Massachusetts, and um, he's a very uh, tricky figure in the whole story. In some ways, um, in s- certainly pro-independence, in fact, the sort of the architect of independence in a lot of ways. Um, he made common cause with the Pennsylvania radicals I'm talking about, Payne, um, Dr. Thomas Young. Uh, James Cannon, these are not names that have rung down through the ages, some of them. Uh, Payne's has, the others really haven't. Samuel Adams came from Massachusetts and made common cause with those guys um, in order to bring about the downfall of Pennsylvania and replace it with a pro-independence government, because what Samuel Adams wanted, and he wanted it with a single-mindedness that's kind of overwhelming, was American independence. He was actually not a social radical, though. He didn't actually Want in Massachusetts uh, the kind of egalitarianism that he helped bring about in Pennsylvania, um, he his end his end was independence. The radicals in, in Pennsylvania's end was uh, a more egalitarian society, and they made a kind of temporary common cause, which ended up getting us to the Declaration.
1: How did they end up overthrowing the Pennsylvania government?
0: Um, through a series of steps, um, both out in the street and in the Congress, and it was a coordinated effort. Um, Honchoed by Samuel Adams, um, back channel and back room uh, to a great extent. There were a couple of components. Um, the radical committees had taken over uh, a lot of the executive function of the state um, and was, was sort of in opposition to the more conservative elected assembly. Um, and they, they were getting more and more power among ordinary people. And what they wanted, I mean, the specific thing they wanted uh, in a new Pennsylvania and in a new Pennsylvania government was the vote for people who were not propertied, for, for white uh, men of majority age who were not property, what they used to call manhood suffrage. And again, one has to think back to the, to the, to the way it was at the time, because it's some, sometimes easy to forget that um, the right to vote was qualified uh, by property ownership, and the right to run for office was qualified by owning even more property, actually. So that's what the radicals really wanted. They wanted to smash the connection between representation in government and property ownership. Um, Samuel Adams didn't want to smash that connection. He wanted to get independence. So together they worked out a plan Um, and you know in broad strokes um, Samuel Adams' contingent including his second cousin, younger second cousin John Adams, kind of beat on Pennsylvania in a sense from above uh, in the Congress and the radicals including Payne uh, and Young and Cannon uh, and, and, and Benjamin Rush, who was a name that actually some people know, um, and, and their group kind of beat on Pennsylvania from below um, because they, weren't, they were obscure people who were not actually in the Congress. So between the Congress pushing one way against Pennsylvania and the street mobilizing uh, the other way against Pennsylvania, they gave John Dickinson, who was the, uh, the majority leader basically of the, uh, of the conservatives in Pennsylvania, uh, they gave him nowhere to stand finally. Um, and it went through a series of steps uh, both in the congress and in the street
1: Was there a, groups of people who were in favor of independence and groups ethnic groups or, or business groups uh, who were pro or anti-independence? Did yeah. they collect like
0: that? Um, it didn't perfectly break down necessarily by any particular kind of group but uh, the German population in Philadelphia was was believed to be and sort of known to be pro-independence for example and you, got, you, got, you get into an issue there with um, people who wanted reconciliation, who saw Germans you know it's almost an anti-immigration kind of mentality they, they were like why are these Germans who aren't re-, you know who aren't really like us? why did why would they get to push us toward independence? We don't you know they, they, they really shouldn't be they shouldn't be allowed to vote I mean Germans were allowed to vote um, but uh, if, if they were naturalized um, because Pennsylvania was actually very liberal in certain social ways. Um, so some so some of things like that played in certainly when Thomas Paine wrote a uh, Wrote a broadside uh, to the people, uh, sort of in the middle peri- in, in the middle of May. Uh, he wrote it. They, they published it in two languages. They published it in English and in German. It was called the Alarm, and in German it was Der Alarm. And they got it out to the Germans and to the German-speaking population and to the English-speaking population at the same time.
1: Why were the Germans for independence? Hmm.
0: That's an interesting question. I think a lot of people were for independence who felt that there was go- there was going to be potential. For greater egalitarianism in a new in a new Pennsylvania, um, so I think Germans had that. The Germans had that in mind.
1: So, so how did it actually happen? The moment when the Pennsylvania government was overthrown.
0: It ha- again a series of steps. Um, one of the places to look is um, a resolution of the Congress, and then a preamble that was tacked onto the front of that resolution. And many history books mention. This, this resolution as, an, as a significant moment, but the context in which it played to overturn Pennsylvania and what Samuel Adams, the Adamses actually had planned for Pennsylvania often gets left out. There's a resolution of May 10th of the Congress um, in which the, brought in by John Adams uh, and Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, also an, a pro-independence, a member of the Alliance for, for Independence. Uh, and the resolution of May 10th uh, that they proposed had the Congress Suggesting to those states that did not have working governments that they go ahead and put in new governments, um, which, again, if we think of the federal Congress now, that would actually be in itself kind of a, a bizarre move. I mean, the the Continental Congress actually didn't have any real right or precedent in imposing governments on the its member colonies. Well, they so they had no legal authority they didn't really have legal authority in that sense. I mean, they didn't make laws. They didn't make laws that acted on people. They made resolutions for what the Congress was going to do as a representation of the, of the colonies. But that, that role was tricky um, because, of course, they also had a lot of influence and a lot of power um, because they were the Congress and they were carrying out the war. That's really what their, what their job was. So they had a kind of authority that was new, really, and no one really knew exactly how it should work. When John Adams brought that resolution in, and Richard Henry Lee brought that resolution in, it was—it it sounded like it sounded—it was already strange because it was a bit of—I mean—a lot of a lot of the congressmen saw it as overreaching um, of the Congress, just out of its out of its you know authority. But um, the real purpose of it was quite specifically to encourage the street in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania to rise up against the Pennsylvania government and saying basically, we the Congress will support that. And it wasn't an abstract idea. Meanwhile, the Adamses were meeting with those very revolutionaries in in Pennsylvania, revolutionaries against Pennsylvania. Um, They'd been been having secret meetings with them for months, getting this all set up and ready. So they went into the Congress with that resolution to get the Congress to adopt the idea that anyone who wants to put in a new government can. Meanwhile the street is saying to it, to the committee the committees are saying to the people hey we've got the congress on our side and we're gonna take over pennsylvania and you're gonna get the vote uh... which was a radical idea so so may tenth uh... was an important date in that sense however uh... the plot thickened when john dickinson in the congress you would have thought that he might have stood up in the congress and said what's, what's going on here what are these guys doing you know i know they're meddling in my local politics they're they're trying to get the congress to push our government around no He would have had a perfectly good reason to say that. But Dickinson was an amazingly shrewd politician a very experienced and very mature and adept one. And instead of doing that, which in a sense would have revealed that he was in trouble in in his own state, he embraced the resolution, argued for adopting it, pointing out, well, Pennsylvania does have a working government. It's working better than most of the other governments. We just had an election on May 1st. Uh, we're doing fine, so of course this doesn't apply to us. So yeah, sure, let's, let's adopt it. So the, the, uh, the resolution was adopted, but leaving John Adams, I think, steaming because its purpose had been defeated very cleverly by Dickinson. So that was a setback, actually, for independence along the way. So that was a Friday, the 10th. Uh, and over the weekend, John Adams wrote a preamble to the resolution that had been adopted on Friday and brought it in on Monday. And over the course of a few days, a very, very hot debate uh... the preamble was adopted on the fifteenth of May and the preamble the preamble really uh... was one of the major steps in in, in declaring independence. And what was in it? Um, Dickinson by the way had left town after his victory after his clever move on the on the tenth. So um, Adams pulled the fast boy. So he did, yeah. Dickinson was out of town and it's, no one knows why Dickinson left town. I mean he really needed to be there to, to find another way to push back because the Adamses were not going to lie down on this. Um, the, the May fifteenth uh, resolution uh, preamble to the resolution, kind of pushed the resolution around. It said that since our relationship with the king has become so bad, any government in which oaths of loyalty are taken to the king is de facto illegitimate. Whereas, it was very John Adams, it was like whereas, 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 just left, right, left, right, with the whereases, and it, it finally says it finally then leads into the resolution itself that had been written bef- and says so. Whereas all that, whereas anyone who's taking oath to the king is fundamentally disloyal to to, the, to America, anyone who wants a new government should have one. So now it was saying that any government that took that sort of ritual loyalty oath was illegitimate and w- would be ju- you'd be justified in rising up against it. Pennsylvania was one such government that did take that oath. Um, uh, James Wilson of Pennsylvania argued, "He's like leave our government alone. We'll just we'll just go into session and we'll we'll stop taking oaths." We can make we can change that rule through the normal legislative process, but they were not they were giving they were giving that legislative process nowhere to stand.
1: So was there a moment when the when the mob came storming upon the Pennsylvania Assembly with torches and pitchforks <laughs> and the assembly members were running out the back door? Was there a the moment of overthrow?
0: No, it was more it was orderly, uh, and in that in that sense there is no parallel the parallels with, I mean, the Bolshevik Revolution, for example, or the French Revolution, are really not there because it was done in, a, since it was a completely, you know, the polite word for it is extra legal. Uh, it was illegal. Since it was a complete, it was done without regard for precedent. Um, it's it's a radical overthrow. But it was done without that kind of moment. It was done in an orderly fashion essentially by the militias. I mean, the, the way the radicals had organized. The working class of Pennsylvania was through the militia system because that was a place where the rank and file of the militia were often these unpropertied men who had no right to vote, but they served in the militia, and militia life was much more democratic. Men elected their own officers, uh, not all the way up the line, but they wanted to have more and more power to elect their officers all the way up the line. Um, so the militias essentially mustered and said, they gave a vote of no confidence to John Dickinson in the Pennsylvania Assembly, just said, "We're with the Congress now, and we're not with." The assembly, and they had that Congress. Since the Adams has got the Congress, uh, sort of as part of that, as part of the, uh, I don't know, it's sort of like uh, between putting putting Dickinson between a rock and a hard place. I mean, it's the Congress was was poised, the militias were poised, and the, all the militias really had to do, in a way, was say, we're no longer taking orders from the Pennsylvania Assembly, and we're going to have a new, we're going to have a convention. You know, it wasn't done with a mob action the way we think of mob action it was done by a movement and it was done by rank and file but it was um you know they they called a convention to create a new government and write a new constitution and they wrote a constitution uh... they did everything you know in a in a a perfectly orderly fashion just outside
1: of any precedent that had ever existed before well how did the reconciliationists then take it? I mean the people who wanted to reconcile with England who did not want independence who had just elected a government to say no independence how did they take that? Uh, Not well it was a it was a tough moment Um, the, there was a
0: there's a period through and this, in the book there's a sort of a limbo period where everything's just kind of hanging. The assembly's still meeting. There's been a meeting in the state house yard, Independence Hall's what we call now Independence Hall. That was the Pennsylvania State House at the time. Out in that yard, which many people have, have been to, uh, uh, there was a m- giant mass meeting on May 20th, um, and again, they didn't storm in. They adopted resolutions in the crowd. Um, but there was intimidation involved too, because somebody tried to vote against adopting the crowd's resolutions, and they shouted him down and hissed and booed, and it was it, it was it was bloodless, but it was done by force and intimidation also. So the so the reconciliationists who existed throughout Pennsylvania uh, were in trouble. Uh, some of them brought in uh, a document called a remonstrance uh, and and got try and got it adopted by the. The assembly, which was hanging on by a thread at that point, and, they, and riders rode around Pennsylvania taking it to the, to the small towns and the villages, out, in, out into the backcountry even, trying to get people to sign on to the idea that we should keep our elected government. Um, because part of what happened w- was, of course, not just that uh, you know, there were reconciliationists who didn't want independence, but even plenty of Pennsylvanians who wanted independence hadn't really wanted to see their, their government overthrown. Uh, that was just the tactic by which independence was gained by the Adamses. But Pennsylvanians, not all Pennsylvanians wanted that. But the militias really were in charge at that point. The radical militias and the radical committees were, were incredibly well organized throughout Pennsylvania. And if you showed up with that, re, ra, that remonstrance, uh, you were quickly reminded. I mean, the remonstrance was burned in public. People were hounded out of town who were carrying it. And there was just really no chance for, for that government.
1: Would this never have happened
0: if the outside agitators, if the Ad- Adamses had not shown up? Boy, that's a, you know that's that's a tough question. I mean, no one know. It's like one of those what if games, and it's really interesting to think how that would have gone. I don't think I don't think it's true that it wouldn't that something like it wouldn't have happened without the Adamses. And while Samuel Adams was a brilliant backroom coordinator, um, he was not a puppet master which is sometimes how he's portrayed. I mean these these people in Pennsylvania, this was a movement of the people of Pennsylvania or at least of some of the people of Pennsylvania, a large number of the working class that wanted the vote and they had been organized already um, by some of these radicals around the idea of um, getting more power Um, so I don't think Samuel, we don't want to see Samuel Adams as just this guy pushing ignorant people around to do his bidding because that that, that was not how it went. Um, However I don't think it would have gone, you know, from May 1st to July 4th the way it went if the Adamses had not uh, coordinated specifically with those people at that time. Something would have happened. What was Benjamin Franklin doing during all this? Ah, yeah. Uh, In the nine weeks of the book, Benjamin Franklin uh, was sick a lot. Um, He had been sent to Quebec to to try to negotiate, try to get support from, from Canada for the American Revolution. He was old how old was he? Yeah, how old was he exactly? You know, uh, octogenarian. You know, um, mm-hmm. septuagenarian. Sorry, you've, you've got me on the date. But uh, he was elderly at mm-hmm. the time and not very well, and sometimes didn't show up to the Congress. Uh, he was in. The, he was in. The, you know, a, a member, of, important member of the Continental Congress. Important partly because his uh, his prestige was so vast and so 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 worldwide. Really, I mean, certainly Europe and America. His prestige was wide. He was m- the most famous person certainly in the Congress, but he didn't show up a lot. Um, but his backstory um, on this whole thing is interesting because he, of course, had spent a career in uh, Pennsylvania politics, and now Pennsylvania politics was really changing. Um, he very shrewdly, he presided over the, convention, the Constitutional Convention to write the radical Pennsylvania Constitution. So he kind of grabbed a hold of this movement and made it, you know, he, he survived, basically, uh, by grabbing a hold of that movement.
1: I want to read you something about that because the the 1776 Pennsylvania Constitution you say it made Pennsylvania's executive branch a committee appointed by and dependent on the legislative branch. That legislative branch had only one chamber lacking any check by an upper house. It was elected in proportion to population. Judges were elected locally and there were no property requirements for the franchise and you quote john adams good god john adams said when he read pennsylvania's constitution the people of pennsylvania in two years will be glad to petition the crown of england for reconciliation to be delivered from the tyranny of their constitution yes
0: that's john adams in a nutshell i mean you know they passed all these law i mean amazingly what they didn't actually get into the constitution of pennsylvania but they thomas young one of the radicals of the period tried to get in a constitutional provision to make it illegal in Pennsylvania, for any one person to own in excess of of a certain amount of property, I mean that's a socialistic measure. Actually, uh, it didn't get in the Constitution. That was too radical, even for the radi- most of the radicals of the time. But those assemblies that came in under that kind, con- the first assemblies came in and they started passing anti-monopoly laws, all kinds of things that you know that that seemed sort of uh, New Deal and Great Society like. And uh, and there were there were radical. Suddenly, they had a few working class people actually in the assembly. I mean uh... finley from uh, western pennsylvania A weaver was in the assembly and uh, herman husband the preacher who later shows up in the whiskey rebellion was in there
1: i want to read this about herman husband because you say um, he came from bedford county and uh he proposed going off the gold standard and centrally regulating paper currency inflation. He wanted taxes on income and wealth and wanted them to be progressive. He wanted a public program to make old people financially secure. And for these ideas, he became known as the madman of the Alleghenies. That's
0: right. He was known as the madman of the Alleghenies because he really... You, you kind of had to be a little crazy to envision Social Security <laughs> and progressive taxation in 1776, but he did. What a nut. Yeah, what a nut. I mean, <laughs> and uh, and John Adams, of course, you know, this was scandalizing to John Adams. I mean, that good God, it's like he erupts, you know. What is this document? You know, how can they even think about having such such a democratic society? I mean, democratic was a dirty word to, uh, to John Adams. It meant mob rule, basically, to him.
1: Well, so It sounds like on one hand, Pennsylvania went from being kind of, Liking things the way they were and not wanting revolution and and for stability to the extreme, kind of quickly.
0: That is, it is funny how uh, there were there. It it just in a way shows that these these elements were were these clashing elements that were present in Pennsylvania. uh, Were actually those elements were there in all of America at the founding moment. We were not in a sense unified. Um, Pennsylvania seemed to be the most conservative of the colonies in the sense that it was the leader of the anti-independence movement but it was also in some ways one of the most liberal um, because of its egalitarian ideas about you know, letting people come and live and practice their own religions and so forth and that's a really that's a, that's a that becomes kind of a seething mix I mean how could you have the conservative John Dickinson who didn't even want independence but he himself was also a fervent patriot um, and then you have these really extreme radicals who were presaging socialism and, and in that sense you know uh, it's, it's just it's just America in the 18th century was the, a really hot, a really uh, contested space.
1: So while the, uh, the Pennsylvania Assembly was meeting in Independence Hall in the State House?
0: Uh, yes. Uh, the Pennsylvania Assembly met up st- had, had lent its room to the Continental Congress. So they were both meeting in the same yes. building? Uh, yes.
1: What was going on in the Continental Congress at the time?
0: Well, in the Congress, um, a lot was going on because, of course, day to day, what they were really doing was running this war, getting ready for the British invasion. Um, and it was very, very difficult and exhausting, because it was, they didn't, they had a million committees, but it was just, it was a small number of people compared to what we think of today in a Congress, of course, because there were only 13 member states, and people kept coming and going. They hadn't even really set the rules yet for how many you could have there at a time for any one, for any one member uh, colony, and they were just exhausted with overwork on minutiae of, you know, they had to, they had to vote on everything. You know, like, should we? How many pairs of shoes should we get for this militia? You know, can we reimburse this guy fifty bucks for this carding that he did? I mean, down to that kind of thing. Um, and at the same time, there was the big, the big, scary question of whether what the war was really going to be for. Was it going to be to bring England to terms and go back to the way things were between 1765, or was it going to be for independence? So there was a. It was a, I envision that room, I and mean, many of us have visited that room many times, um, and it's very placid now and very beautiful room, and it, it was a very serene and lovely room at the time, too, but, but I have a feeling, I mean, the mood in there was bad. John Adams describes the mood as prickly and hostile, and he was prickly and hostile, but I think it was, a lot of these people had been together too long, uh, trying to deal with impossible problems. You know, it was just all men sitting in a room. A lot of them, really, you know, at each other's throats. There was a kind of m- tone of strained politeness that was probably the only thing keeping things together. Sometimes, I think it was probably a pretty tough room to be in. How long
1: did the Second Continental Congress meet?
0: Oh well, you know, I, I don't, I don't. How? Long, when, when was the official end of the Second Congress? I mean, I, I don't, I, I can't actually answer that question. Or when was the start I of it?
1: When? Oh, the question, they came. They came. They came right events. around the
0: time uh, they had. They were actually in. They were. They were in session when. Lexington and Concord occurred, mm-hmm. I believe, but they had just come into session then. Um, so they'd been, at, But some of these people had been in the first Continental Congress bef- the year before that. Um, some of them were new, so you have this mixture of people who are really sick of each other and people who are just kind of coming in, going, you know, what am I doing here? Um, and you never knew any given day who was going to show up. So I think it was a tense place. When this was all over, they became, they did form a union, of course, and became what I think of as the Confederation Congress. Um, still not a, still not a national government uh, by any means, but a, but a, a, a con, an actual a
1: formal confederation. When they declared their independence, did they think they were creating one country or thirteen countries?
0: Well, that's a really that's the million dollar question in a way. I mean, they it was absolutely critical uh, that they that they secede or declare independence together. Um, there was really no individual independence. Um, possible, pr- just on a practical level, there was no way to conduct a war in that way. I mean, you know, if the middle colonies had gone for reconciliation and the other colonies, you know, the South and, the, and New England, had tried to go for independence, say, uh, you know, it would have been over because you've got, you know, you, your line is divided and there's the British Army. I mean, it was already a pretty risky thing to do. So doing it together uh, was critical. They said, you know, these United States, um, but often they turned. They meant the, They said the United States in the plural. They wouldn't have said the United States is at that time. Um, so I think it remains one of the. You know, it remains one of the tricky questions uh, even to this day. Although we have, of course, uh, had a national government for a long time, still there's that issue about 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 states' rights, um, and that issue was very much on the table at the time. What was the first Continental Congress all about? Well, it was it was about. It was ostensibly about forming a, a strong intra and intercolonial colonial um, resistance to British tax policies that seemed intolerable at that point, point. Um, and a strong resistance. It was not about independence, but it was about an, a concerted and tough and uncompromising resistance to those
1: tax policies.
0: Did, um, did yeah.
1: they pass any laws or resolutions, or were they They passed resolutions. They,
0: they didn't pass laws. I mean, the Congress really didn't pass laws, um, you know, because it really wasn't a legislative body. Um, although it was representative but they, they passed resolutions um, and tried to get them adopted in the uh, in the state assemblies which is where it re- you know we, to make something really you know happen you had to have the state the state assemblies actually adopting those resolutions.
1: Uh, who uh, who decided who the delegates were to each of the continental congresses? Uh,
0: the, the, the various assemblies sent them and they had different kinds of nominating and, and pr- very widely varying procedures for, for sending for sending people They were usually the people they picked. Were by and large the obvious people, um, well-known people in their, in their assemblies or, or well-known people in, the, in their states, um,
1: elites usually. Was it seen as a, a step above the state legislature, like a promotion to be in mm. the Continental Congress, or was the action thought to be at the state level? Well,
0: I, a lot of the action was thought to be at the state level. I mean, I think it was an extremely important job to go to the Continental Congress. And, I th- and, they, and they called it our great Congress and our august Congress and things like that. I mean, there was a lot of glory around being in the Congress, and it was certainly an adventurous place to be. Um, but, for example, Thomas Jefferson, uh, when he sat down to draft the Declaration itself, was frustrated because what he really wanted to be working on, the really cool job, would have been to be working on a new government for Virginia. I mean, that's making a new government. That That's something. This was not a government. This was a, a, an administrative body, this Congress. Uh, he felt it was his responsibility, and many people felt it was their responsibility. And I think a lot of people really wanted to be there. John Adams, I think, saw it as a way to become very, very important, uh, for example, and he did. Um, but making a new government was all, in Massachusetts was something John Adams very, very much wanted to be involved in and was. That seemed like the hot job to have.
1: You, uh, you say that uh, in the book that uh, a lot of people remember what happened in the Continental Congress differently than other people and it's hard to get a, a read on what really happened. Those last few days of the, of, the,
0: of the story, of course the Congress went on, I bring it to a climax uh, July 1st, 2nd, 3rd and 4th, those, those climactic days were remembered very differently by the people who participated and it's funny, it's ironic to me because, um, you know, Samuel Adams tried to keep his backroom stuff secret and so it's hard to get a handle on what was going on there because was, he, he burned papers and told other people to burn their papers and didn't want anyone to know what he was doing. But what's funny is that, that everybody who was there on the first, second, third, and fourth when we actually became independent in July wrote about, wrote about it, talked about it. There's almost too much. And they wrote about it differently and they described it differently. Um, some historians, you know, it rained uh, on the second. And, and I should say, uh, we became independent on the 2nd of July. Uh, The 4th of July was the day we adopted the document that explained our independence, which is what the Declaration really is. We became independent on the 2nd by adopting a resolution brought in by Richard Henry Lee uh, saying these United States, these states are and of right ought to be independent, free and independent. So, the 2nd is really the big day, actually, a much bigger day to the people there than the 4th ever was. And it rained, on the f- it rained on the second, There was a big thunderstorm in the afternoon. It was a very, very tense day and they actually finally did it. And then it, and, and there it was, you know, the but, but some writers have described that rain coming at one time in the day, others another time. Some want the thing to just be this thunder clap and you know, they had to light candles in the chamber and the winds were blowing and rain's coming up against the tall windows. Other people describe it differently and really there's no knowing. In some way there's no real knowing about the most written about days in our history Uh, you know, the backstory. I had to kind of tease out. This part, I just kind of throw up my hands, like what really happened that day? What was the weather? When did that storm start? You know.
1: Uh, Tell
0: me about Richard Henry Lee and his hand. Oh, yeah. He had blown off uh, fingers of his left hand in a a shooting accident, hunting accident. He was a great sportsman like a lot of the Virginians, and he was a very classic Virginian. Tall, uh, regal bearing, uh, great rider. Uh, great hunter, but he had blown off those fingers so he wrapped his hand in a silk, black silk glove and he would gesticulate kind of w- with it when he talked and he had a very, very um, musical delivery. Um, people said he practiced in front of a mirror. Uh, you know, they accused him of practicing in front of a mirror. He was a very, very persuasive speaker um, but part of, his, part of his charm strangely seemed to come from that black gloved hand that he would move around while he spoke.
1: Why was he the guy who stood up and made that resolution?
0: Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, for one thing, uh, the Massachusetts, Samuel Adams, again, liking to keep in the background, although by this time everybody knew how John and Samuel Adams felt about independence. Still, they, they, they definitely wanted Virginia to be taking the lead on, on a lot of the things in the Congress um, because the Massachusetts men were seen as extremists. Um, and it just looked... It just looked better if Virginia brought some of this stuff in, so it didn't look like it, so it didn't look like the whole effort was being driven by some people from one state. Uh, that's one reason. And Virginia had its had its own very strong commitment. Virginia wasn't taking orders from Massachusetts either. I mean, Samuel Adams didn't tell Richard Henry Lee what to do every day. Uh, Virginia had its own very strong pro independence faction. Uh, Patrick Henry uh, down in down in Williamsburg and uh, Richard Henry Lee and working it in Philadelphia.
1: Why was Virginia so pro-independence? I mean, you see Massachusetts, they had had the fighting with the British and, and you said the middle states were kind of pro-reconciliation, but what, what made Virginia want to be independent? It's a really interesting feature of this alliance
0: between the South, Virginia, you know, uh, and the North, Massachusetts. Of course, some years later, you know, the the relation between the North and the South is, is as bad as it can be. But at that moment, they did join together for independence. And Virginia is an interesting question. Um, and it, it forms a certain backstory in the book. Um, it, it was, once they got down to their, their provincial convention really deciding whether they were going to go for independence, it didn't take that much to do. Uh, uh, the Lees were not everybody in Virginia was for independence, and not everybody in the Virginia delegation in the Congress was for independence either. I mean, so the delegations were all split, and the states were all split, including Virginia. Um, so you have people like, uh, the Le- you have the people like the Lees who were kind of beginning to make common cause with some of the Western settlers in Virginia. They were The Lees were an old aristocratic family, um, but they were beginning to think about Republican government in a new way, beginning to think that they should be kind of the representatives of the West, a more, adopt a more egalitarian spirit, um, although they didn't adopt the kind of radical egalitarianism of, of the radicals in Pennsylvania. Another factor I think uh, for Virginia was that uh, the, the royal governor encouraged Virginia's slaves to rise up against their, promised them freedom if they would rise up against their American planter masters, uh, which definitely encouraged some Virginians to now think there was no further way to have a relationship with England.
1: If, if Richard Henry Lee, it was, is he at the same Lees as Robert E. Lee? Yeah, yeah. Do you know the relationship? I can't right
0: now, uh, t- like like Benjamin Franklin's age, <laughs> one camera right now, I can't perfectly uh, tap that. Um, a, lot a lot of Lees. And there are a lot of Lees, and those families were, uh, were were complicated. It may be quite simple, but um, I'll think of it as soon as we're off
1: camera. <laughs> now, if Richard Henry Lee was the guy who stood up and made the motion, I move that we're independent, why isn't he more famous?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's not a, again, I mean, he was a very important man in his day, and it's not a name again. It's a name that's obscure, somewhat obscure, um, and I don't know the answer to that. Why did the, you know, John Adams always felt Thomas Jefferson got too much credit for the Declaration? Um, I sort of feel that John Adams, that Samuel Adams doesn't get enough credit for what he was doing in in, in the story I tell, you know, in these nine in these nine weeks back 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 channel and back room, uh, as well as in the Congress. Um, but um, why don't the Virginians get more credit? I mean, Jefferson, of course, gets credit for writing the Declaration. Lee was a... I don't know. I don't know why Lee's been passed over. He was actually kind of an amazing guy, and he had an amazing bearing, and he looked great, and he was a great speaker. And why has he sort of disappeared from the story, since that really was his resolution? I can't answer that.
1: Are there people in this book who you you would love to know more about, who you'd just love to be able to sit down with and ask questions that you couldn't glean from doing your research?
0: Yeah, they're the more... I mean, of course, I'd like to ask Samuel Adams some questions, um, because he he did do a very fine job of of covering his tracks. And there were times when I I was piecing this together. you know. And I'm piecing it. It's it's not like I found the smoking gun document, and this is new primary source stuff. I've read the primary sources, and I've read the secondary sources. And this story has been scattered around a lot of other stories. Uh, It's there for the finding. But it had to be found, so I felt like I was on his trail sometimes, on Samuel Adams's trail. And I went, "Ah, got you. Okay, that's where you were." But I'd like to say, you know, he was trying to burn his papers and make sure no one knew about these meetings. But one of his allies, Christopher Marshall, was writing down every meeting that they took because he was he 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 was an obsessive diarist. Luckily for us, now we have that we have that. But I'd like to talk to Samuel Adams about a couple things. But I don't think I'd get anywhere much with Samuel Adams. The people I really would love to have more have more uh, access to are the people I've mentioned who are not really big names, like uh, Thomas Young, Christopher Marshall, I just mentioned, The Diarist, Uh, Benjamin Rush, eh, uh, better known, Payne, of course, well known, Um, and James Cannon, who I think is one of the most interesting characters in the book, but so little is known about him, he was such a modest person in a way, uh, that I'd really like to ask him how he managed to organize or help organize the entire working class of Pennsylvania so quickly through the militia system because that was really his idea. He was a math teacher.
1: Was he from Pennsylvania or Massachusetts? He was Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, yeah. He, he lived in Pennsylvania. He uh, was from Scotland originally but he was an, he had been an American for a while. Uh, and, you know, an amazing mind and an amazing organizational ability and an amazing vision of the future in which, you know, people without property would get to vote. Um, you know, which was a radical vision at the time and he made it happen. Uh, because of his great organizational abilities, and then he went back to teaching. You know, he helped form an entirely radical new kind of government in the world when they when they adopted that radical Pennsylvania Constitution. Uh, they uh, they changed the world in a way. I mean, they they there was no property qualification for the franchise. Uh, he brought that about, and uh, James Cannon. And uh, you know, then he went back to teaching math.
1: Is there anything much written about him? No,
0: really, not much, not much. He wrote himself. He wrote a number of of the, resolu- the resolutions of the Committee of Privates, which is what he helped form, uh, the militia privates, the ones who were actually uh, you know, the unenfranchised who wanted to be enfranchised. He wrote, a, I think, a number of their resolutions, and he wrote letters to the papers and stuff. But uh, no, not much has been written about him, and I don't think much... I mean, I, you know, he's, he plays in this book as the organizer, uh, as the kind of somewhat quiet one who's actually doing a lot of the real the real work. I mean, I'd love to meet Thomas Young, another guy who's not that famous, but more has, somewhat more has been written about him. The opposite of, he was Cannon's kind of partner in organizing, uh, and he was a loud, loud person, and very uh, flamboyant, and uh, flamboyantly anti-authoritarian, and a scoffing deist, and he'd been called up on charges up in upstate New York where he had lived uh, of, 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 bla- on bla- of blasphemy charges. He was indicted for blasphemy in Dutchess County uh, for calling Jesus a knave and a fool, and then to, he point, and he said, I'm talking about the Jesus that everyone says is the son of a virgin, in case you don't know who I'm talking about. Uh, that got him in all kinds of hot water. Um, he was, I'd love to meet him. Just He'd be an entertaining person to sit down and have a cup of coffee with.
1: In this nine weeks that your book covers, were there people whose minds were changed or were things just organized differently? Well, that's really a great question because I think some, people,
0: some people's minds probably were very much changed. And I think one of the features of the period that's sort of interesting is nobody knew exactly what to do they took positions and they held them very, very fiercely sometimes. But how could you know what your position really was, should be on American independence? It was a radically new idea. You know, how, how would you know even what your position necessarily should be? You know, how, how would an ordinary person who was being confronted with this question know whether people without property should be allowed to vote? I mean, if you didn't have property and you wanted to participate, you might endorse that. But there was a long tradition of tying the whole idea of liberty and representation to property ownership. So, so people had to think, think about new ideas. So I think some people's minds definitely changed and changed back and I don't see a lot of consistency in, in certain people in how they thought at the time. On the other hand, uh, I think we, we sometimes make too much of the idea of persuasion and discussion and debate leading to a consensus because the story I'm telling is really of, uh, uh, of a revolution, not of, of an overthrow, not of A bunch of gentlemen sitting in a room, having a polite discussion, and finally all coming to the same idea. I mean, John Dickinson was overcome by Samuel Adams, and John Dickinson's ideas were overcome by Samuel Adams' ideas. Uh, Somebody won and somebody lost, and it was a fight to the finish, really to the
1: finish. Were the delegations, the individual colony or state delegations, communicating a lot with their home state? Was there a lot of did, did the state legislatures know what was going on on day to day and send them instructions or were they kind of making their own judgments?
0: Yeah, they know uh, Well, again, I mean, it, it played in a very in a very interesting way. They were under strict instructions. They were supposed to operate under instructions. They came up. They showed their instructions were shown. You know, they were presented. They were admitted. Uh, they operated under specific written instructions. And like the Middle Colony instructions, way all, very far down the line were. A Oppose anything even resembling uh, a Declaration of Independence, for example. So they couldn't they couldn't actually operate on their own. However, they had their own, they, they were people. They had their own opinions. They were subject to um, lobbying, uh, backroom lobbying. Um, certainly, what Samuel Adams and Richard Henry Lee were doing a lot of the time was taking people out for coffee and saying, you know, come on, you've got to like push 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 your state legislature. You know, don't just take the instruction. Go back and ask them for new instructions um, because they couldn't operate. Out of their instructions, but they they had some influence on the state legislatures too. Um, so that was a there was a little bit of a wedge there, and that's the wedge that that the independence forces tried to move into was just go back and get other instructions. But for example, I mean, on May on May fifteenth, I think it was yes, it was in, it was in response to that preamble I was talking about being adopted. Maryland walked out. The Maryland delegation got up, cleared their desks, packed up, and said, "We're going back home." and uh, you know, we can't, we can't, this, re, this, this preamble has completely changed the relationship of the Congress to the states. We have to go back and check with the legislature to find out what to do, and we're not going to consider the May 10th resolution binding on us at all now. Uh, that was a scary moment, because we, you needed unanimity. Um, the Adamses were willing to take a risk even of you know, potentially risking a division in the Union to get this thing through. And, of course, Maryland did come back, but when they first came back, they came back under strict instructions to oppose independence.
1: Uh, can you explain how Pennsylvania came to its vote? Each
0: state had one vote? Uh, well, yeah, each state had one vote, but it was complicated by the fact that um, it, it, there were differing numbers of people in every delegation, and they could all vo- every, every delegate could vote uh, his own way. Uh, interpret his instructions and vote his own way. So even if your instructions said, they got no instructions in a lot of the colonies, and some of the, many of them did not say vote for independence. They said you may vote for independence. They were hedging all the way to the last minute. You may, uh, but that didn't mean you had to. So if you were for reconciliation, you could vote against independence. So the votes, I mean, if you had five people in a delegation, five people happen to show up that day instead of six, or you had two, or you had ten, um, uh, the majority. Got, got the vote got the one vote of that delegation so if it split five to four if it was that close in a delegation it didn't matter if that vote was five to four for independence that colony voted for independence if the vote split didn't count the vote didn't count and it got complicated because in the, in the final vote I mean one of the ways they got independence through in the end was um, was uh, that the Delaware vote split and so they sent an express rider to F- Caesar Rodney in Delaware and Tell them to come on up here overnight. Get here so they would have a majority within their delegation for independence the next day uh, when they got out of committee and into the actual vote.
1: Can you describe the scene of Caesar Rodney arriving and how much of that is is really happened and how much is legend? Yeah, I'd love to describe it, but it's been described so many different
0: ways that I find it kind of indescribable. Um, all he said later, and some of this is people reconstructing their memories from much later. Uh, Thomas McCain of uh, of, uh, of Pennsylvania. Uh, who was actually representing Delaware but was from Pennsylvania, um, said he met Rodney at the door on arrival that morning, the morning of the 2nd, which of course is the date that we became independent, um, as I was saying, uh, the morning of the 2nd, he said he met Rodney at the door and they walked in and business commenced immediately. All Rodney said was he got there, he had been delayed by rain, uh, but he got there. Um, From that, and I I don't think there's too much else there, that's actually reliable. From that, we have descriptions of him galloping up at the last minute and running in, you know, and if he had been too late, you know, it, it, it would have gone the other way. The doors were about to close. Doors were about you to close as if there. he couldn't have, you know, like, as if he couldn't have maybe you know, they wouldn't have waited. There's one description where they all, all the, men, all the men in the Congress sit in silence and they hear him clip, clap, clip, clap, clip, clap outside and they all rise together to meet him as he walks in. I don't know where this, some of this stuff comes from. It makes for good storytelling. But I find, what I find most interesting is that at these key moments, sometimes you just have to go, and then and all I can do really is say, here are the ten ways this has been described. And they're all kind of cool, but all, all Rodney said was this.
1: So when the vote finally happened, was there jubilation or fear or relief? or what? Uh, It's, what it's, it's funny. I uh, each person probably felt something
0: different. I'm sure that, I mean, John Adams was a bullion. Uh, he felt that July 2nd would be the day we celebrated forever with fireworks and, you know, hot dogs or whatever, <laughs> whatever he would have imagined us eating. Um, he thought the 2nd was going to go down in history as the great, glorious day of independence. Uh, so there was great, great relief and joy at having pulled this off. I think Samuel Adams probably felt a lot, but he never would have revealed what he felt. He even wrote a letter to somebody saying, "Oh, we declared independence today, and uh, I congratulate you on this" to his correspondent because I know you really wanted that. He always was deflecting. I think other people felt great terror uh, of what could happen next. I mean, were we going to defeat England in a a war uh, for independence? Um, Certainly the the British who were pro-American and believed in American rights, and there were a lot of liberals in England who were pro-American, were horribly dismayed by this because now they knew there was no way back. They'd been arguing, saying we can work with these people, you know, we, we can get this to work out, Let, let's not oppress them, let's not send just troops, let's send a peace commission. Now there was no way. So I think there was a lot of fear and trepidation and there was a lot of joy and ebullience too.
1: What was happening within the Pennsylvania delegation? Who, who was yes and who was oh, no? Uh,
0: well, you know, the great moment really on the last, the last day when they really took the real vote in the actual Congress, not in the committee of the whole, which they did on the first, uh, uh, John Dickinson stayed home, to allow it to happen, essentially to allow it to happen. He took the sort of, he sort of, in a sense, fell on his sword in in an extremely noble way, I think. He was consistent in his principle to the end, and he, of course, was against it, but he stayed home. Robert Morris, uh, who became an important Pennsylvanian uh, in the Revolution uh, and was probably the richest man in the colonies at the time, or certainly about to become that, um, he was opposed to independence and stayed home, too. Um, What's interesting about Morris uh, in that delegation is that he... When they came to sign the declaration in the Congress, which they did not do on the 2nd, and they did not do on the 4th, they did it much later when they, when they got a fair, a really nice copy of it, and it came in in August and was put on the table, and then delegates went and signed with when, they, when they came in. And some people signed who had not even been in the room uh, when, when it had been actually adopted. One of those was Morris, who not only had not been in the room but had opposed it. He came right in, and you can see his signature at the top of the Pennsylvania delegation, big and bold. Um, because he was he was a very canny guy who uh... was gonna he would he would find a horse to ride pretty much no matter you know in any race
1: but the, you you say in the book that the big uh... document that was distributed to everybody was printed it wasn't the handwritten one we're used to seeing. that's right they
0: didn't you know they didn't sign it um, probably maybe john hancock signed the resolution that day because he would have done so maybe as the president of the congress for any resolution that was sent out to the papers and sent out to be printed um, but but the picture that we have in our minds of, of the uh of them sort of like the committee presenting it together and that famous trumbull uh where they're all you know they're all lined up, ready to, you know, sitting there, all ready to sign, uh nothing like that happened. Um, they they just they sent it out to the press, you know, and they did what you would normally do, and it was read out loud uh to crowds, certainly in Philadelphia and all over the place. Um but it was not a, a, the big signed document that we know that came later. Were, was the public surprised that the
1: continental congress declared independence
0: i wonder i don't know i wonder about the public reaction um, some people probably were not surprised because they were hoping for or, or they were pleasantly surprised but hoping for it um... there had been a, you know that may fifteenth resolution uh... the, the preamble uh, when that was adopted certainly people in philadelphia were saying "Oh, well this is pretty much tantamount to declaring independence if the congress is now telling the, the government of Pennsylvania, essentially, that it's, it's about to be replaced uh, by pro-independence faction, we've declared independence. I mean, John Adams was sort of saying, OK, now it's a done deal. And then it kept getting put off and put off and put off um, all the way up to July 4th. But so I think some people were not surprised. Some people knew, saw the writing on the wall. But I think news of independence in some of the remoter places probably didn't even come for some time. And, you know, people weren't, you know, they didn't have... They didn't have obviously the kind of instantaneous communication we have today, but also some people, you know, may not have even been that involved. I mean, there were places out in the back country where where some people were kind of living beyond even the legitimate lines of the states and didn't really necessarily see themselves as even being part of any state. So I don't know. I don't know how they would have how they would have taken that. Was England surprised? Um, yeah, well, I think the Howe brothers, Admiral and General Howe, were were. Badly were bitterly surprised and disappointed on arrival. They thought they could negotiate a peace and that we could avoid the the, the horror of the war that was to come. Um, and I think they were terribly surprised and very unhappy when they arrived and stepped off in Staten Island. And uh, Admiral Howe, the uh, the real negotiator, had been very much thinking he could do some back channel work and 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 come up with a resolution uh, that would somehow satisfy the Americans and the King. I, I don't know if he could have. He thought he could, um, and he was surprised and, and very on, he said you've changed the ground
1: you know what can I do now as as books about monumental moments in history go this is relatively short it's under 200 pages why did you decide to
0: keep it brief I I wanted the tight frame of the nine weeks because I think that May 1st election was a benchmark moment when it looked like independence was dead in the water and then it's such a short period you know really I mean between May 1st and July 4th you know everyone lives through that every year it, it goes by like that so much happened um, that I, I felt like short is, was right for this book because it was a short time. It was a fast-paced time, and the book is fast-paced, too. I mean, I, I'm not... The things I'm talking about now come in as backstory, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story. I mean, it, it moves, it moves uh, with characters in conflict with one another. And I just thought that's, that's the
1: way it was, so let's not have a big tome about this. Now, this is your second time on this program. Your first time was for your book about the Whiskey Rebellion. Is there another book in the works? Uh, well, I've got,
0: another idea for, I've got an idea for a book that would maybe complete the set, the trio. And uh, The Whiskey Rebellion
1: just came out in paperback the same day as uh, Declaration came out in hardcover. So I'm really happy about that. Well, we'll have to have you back when the next one is done. That would be great. William Hoagland, author of this book, Declaration, about the nine weeks prior to the Declaration of Independence. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You've been
0: listening to a podcast of P.A. Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com
1: or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.